Our sermon text is Ruth chapter 3. These are the words of God. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself in There a woman was lying at his feet, and he said, Who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than the beginning, and that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good. Let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, Then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also, he said, Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six aphas of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all the man had done for her. And she said, These six aphas of barley he gave me, for he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Thus far the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the book of Ruth. We pray that as we look at it today, that you would give us a revelation of yourself, that we would be transformed to be like your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Who is Ruth? 
If I could reach back and retitle this sermon, I would title it with that question, Who is Ruth? It seems like an easy question to answer initially, doesn't it? We've been working our way through the book of Ruth, a chapter at a time, around once a month or so, and here we are in chapter 3, so we're somewhat familiar with the story. But as your mind reaches back to answer the question, Who is Ruth? It becomes something of an enigma, doesn't it? Well, you might say Ruth is a Moabite. The book calls attention to that fact repeatedly, maybe even unnecessarily. Over and over again, she is called Ruth the Moabite, even in contexts where you don't need to know that she is a Moabite. The author calls attention to that fact. Or you might say that she is Naomi's daughter-in-law. Naomi and Boaz each call her daughter throughout the book, and she's called Naomi's daughter-in-law. Or you might opt to call her by her name, Ruth. She's Ruth. She's a friend, like her name suggests. She's a friend. She's faithful, faithful to Naomi's family. Or if you've read through to the end of the book, maybe multiple times, like it was suggested at the first sermon, you'd know that Ruth is the great-grandmother of David the king. And maybe the most astute answer would be that she is an ancestress of the Christ through the line of David. And yet, even that brings up another question. How is it that a Moabite who according to the law in Deuteronomy was not even allowed to enter the assembly of Israel. Israelites were not to marry Moabites. How is it that this woman finds herself not only in Israel, but in the line of their first great king David, in the line of the Christ? Who is this woman? This is the question that's at the crux of the third chapter in the book of Ruth, where she is asked on two separate occasions, profoundly, I think, who are you? And in many ways, this scene on the threshing floor in the book of Ruth, is is, in chapter 3, is the crux of the whole book of Ruth. So to set a little context for us, where we've come from last time, in chapter 2, we met Boaz a man of great wealth, a gibor, a gibor chayil, a, a man of stature, a man of strength, a man of might. And Boaz displayed his might, his strength, through his kindness, his hesed, his mercy. For him, the law of God, if you'll remember, was a, an arena, a way for him to display God's kindness to other people. It was a way for him to love his neighbor as himself. Boaz invited this foreigner, Ruth, this outcast, this widow, into his field and instructed his men to take special care of her. He returned the same kindness and loyalty that Ruth had shown to Naomi. And he elevated Ruth's status, bringing her into his own house for a meal and seating her with his servants and lavishing her with grain and wine and filling not only her lack but also 
Naomi's lack too. He recognized that Ruth's kindness was a demonstration of her faith. She had fled the death of Moab, the death of idolatry, taking refuge under the wings of God. And yet, as the second chapter ended, we saw that there still remained a need for a husband, a need for an heir. Ruth, it says in the end of chapter 2, still lives with her mother-in-law. So Boaz, the Gabor, the relative, has appeared on the scene, and yet he has not accomplished the full redemption. And so Naomi formulates a plan, a decisive encounter with Boaz. And we arrive to our text at chapter 3 with a sense of mounting narrative tension. Read with me, beginning at verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security or rest for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down. And he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, All that you say to me I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, she went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And he went down to lie at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now, even with the great distance of time, between us and the events recorded here. And even with the great cultural distance between ancient Hebrew culture and modern American culture, and even reading this story in English instead of Hebrew, we still get a sense of how risky and suggestive and ambiguous Naomi's plan really is. In fact, as I was reading our text earlier, I heard some of you giggling out there as I was reading this part of the story. Naomi tells Ruth to wash, anoint herself, and put on her nicest clothes. At this point, she's probably wearing working clothes, working out in the field and gleaning, or maybe she's wearing widow's garments when she's not at work. But the point is she needs to put on something that is nice and will broadcast to Boaz that she is available. And go down to the threshing floor and wait until he is full and good and merry and tired. And oh, Naomi says, it's going to be dark there because it's at night and there's no lights. Make sure you notice the place where Boaz lies down so you don't end up at the wrong grain pile laying next to the wrong man. And then, when everything is ready, creep up and uncover his feet and lay down. He'll get the picture and tell you what to do next. That's the plan. 
That's it. He'll tell you what to do next. You can feel the tension. We can immediately imagine any number of ways that this could go wrong. What if, what if Boaz rejects Ruth? What if he rejects her advance? What will happen to Ruth? What will happen to Boaz's character if he accepts her? What if Ruth's intentions are misunderstood? And it all seems so strange, really. What really are Ruth's intentions? We think, we hope, that perhaps maybe there's something cultural or something in the original language in Hebrew that would clear it up for us, but there's not. In fact, pretty much every word in verse 4 is a double entendre in Hebrew. The lying down, the going in, especially the uncovering of someone's feet. In Hebrew, that can mean, it can all be read at the surface level. It simply means to have your feet uncovered, but it can also mean that a lot more is uncovered. So what is Naomi actually telling Ruth to do? Besides this, when we do look for further contexts, Naomi's plan has a number of similarities between a lot of other fall stories in the Bible that involve eating and drinking and uncovering. We could think of immediately Adam and Eve, where Eve presents Adam with the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they eat, and their eyes are open. They realize that they are uncovered. They realize their sin. Or maybe we would think of Noah, who becomes married with wine and is uncovered in his tent by his youngest son and shamed by him. Or even closer to home, we might think of the Moabite women in Numbers 25 that lure Israel into idolatry through seduction and festivals. Even more strikingly, the plan is remarkably reminiscent of a pair of unsavory incidents which haunt Boaz and Ruth's respective ancestries. You see, Boaz, the author is keen to point out, is a descendant of Judah through Perez, who was born to Judah by his daughter-in-law, Tamar. You can find that in Genesis 38. And Ruth is a Moabite, whose nation got its beginning from Lot's incestuous encounter with his firstborn daughter. And so all of these situations are brought up to us as a background, as a freight. As we read about Ruth's midnight escapade, a knot begins to form in our stomach, which is hardly alleviated by the suggestive language in the plan. We get the sense that this is a test for Ruth and a test of Boaz. How appropriate is it that chapter 3 occurs on a threshing floor, the place where wheat and chaff are separated. It's a place of revelation. Which are Ruth and Boaz? Are they wheat or chaff? Is this yet another false story? The tension reaches its highest points in verse 8 and 9. Look at them with me. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled, and he turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet, and he said, Who are you? Everything rides on this answer. The answer we, the question we asked before, Who 
is Ruth? Is she another of Lot's daughters? Is she another Tamar, another Eve, perhaps? Verse 9 continues. She answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. It's, it's hard to capture just how perfectly elegant Ruth's answer to that question is. How she recasts all of the ambiguity and the symbolism that has been building up to this point in the chapter. Look again, see that Ruth asks Boaz to take her under his wing or spread his cloak over her. Literally, spread the corner of your garment over me. It's an idiom for marriage. It's used, for example, of the Lord making a covenant with Israel in Ezekiel 16. Let me read that for you. Ezekiel 16.8 I spread my wings over you and covered you. I swore an oath to you and entered into covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. And then I washed you in water. I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth. Did you see that? Did you notice all of the elements of this covenant of the Lord with Israel that is in Ruth's answer? Spread your wings over your maidservant, but also there's the washing and the anointing, and the clothing. She is unambiguously proposing not a cheap night, but marriage to Boaz. She approaches Boaz not as a harlot, but as a bride. The threshing floor in chapter 3 then becomes the great reversal of Ruth and Boaz's ancestries. Ruth here is fulfilling the Leveret Law, which we'll talk about in a moment, while Lot's daughters were committing incest with him. Ruth reveals herself to Boaz, while Tamar concealed herself. Boaz takes the initiative here to raise up offspring for a family member, while Judah had to be tricked. But even more than that, this is a reversal of all of these false stories in that it features two godly people who are committed to waiting on the Lord instead of grasping for what they might have early. That's a a commonality between all of these stories. Adam and Eve grasp early at rule. Lot's daughters grasp early at raising up offspring. And I think there's a great comfort in this reversal that we see here in that both Boaz and Ruth come from families that have histories. And there's comfort in knowing that if you are from a family with a history, that God can even redeem and reverse that. We see that God also works his great works in the everyday The failures of the ancestors of Ruth and Boaz, Judah and Lot, are put right not by the means of some epic military invasion 
or great work, but by the means of faithfulness and a sense of covenantal duty of apparently two insignificant individuals. And that means um, that forever, as we read about Ruth and Boaz, we will remember their names, not for some great triumph like the book of Judges where this is set in, but because of their faithfulness to God and their faithfulness to his law. Boaz and Ruth could have never dreamed of the internal consequences their actions were having as they came together to form the line of David and then later the line of Christ. Think about all the events leading up to this. Ruth is just simply being faithful to her mother-in-law, Naomi, serving her and gleaning in the fields and working. And Boaz is just obeying the law and providing for people. And here, as they work in the everyday, God is using them to work redemption in the world. It's something for us to keep in mind as we do mundane, ordinary tasks like washing the dishes or changing the oil, especially as we do unnoticed acts of faithful obedience to God for the sake of his people. God notices and rewards obedience down to a cup of cold water, and he uses them for the outworking of his glory in Christ. So Ruth's request here recalls not only the Lord himself, but subtly also uses Boaz's own actions and his blessing from chapter 2. When he elevated her to the the status of his servants, and he blessed her in chapter 2, saying, May a full reward be given to you by the Lord, under whose wings you have come for refuge. You see how she's using the exact same language that Boaz used earlier. He brought her and and elevated her and seated her with his servants, and she says, I am your maidservant. And he blessed her, saying, You are coming to the Lord under his wings for refuge. And she says, Spread your wings over your maidservant. She's inviting Boaz to become the answer to his own prayer, to enact the covenant faithfulness of the Lord through marriage. For, she says in verse 9, you are a close relative, or a kinsman redeemer. In Hebrew, the word is goel. Now, the kinsman redeemer, the goel, was a provision in the law for the poor who were forced to sell their property or themselves into slavery. If you, if you got so poor that you needed to sell your land, the land in Israel actually belonged to the Lord. You couldn't permanently sell it. Like we can sell our land or our property and move somewhere else. If you sold your land in Israel, you were selling something that belonged not only to your family, but also to the Lord himself. And so... Um, in the book of Leviticus, there's a, um, there's a law called the kinsman redeemer where someone might come and help you out of your poverty or out of your slavery by redeeming or rebuying your land or paying off your debt. Also, if a family member died without an heir, the kinsman gave himself by marrying the widow and raising up a son to the deceased's name. You can find that in Deuteronomy 25. And so this is the law that Ruth is referencing when she says to Boaz to marry her because he 
is a goel. He is a redeemer. He's, she's asking him to be like the Lord himself. The Lord was the great kinsman redeemer of his people. When they had lost their liberty and were in slavery in Egypt, he redeemed them from their slavery and bondage. Exodus 6 says, I am the Lord and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. She's asking Boaz, you have a godly character. Now enact the kindness of the Lord for us by being a goel. And the most stunning thing about Ruth's request here is that by invoking this image, she is actually inviting Boaz to be a redeemer and marry her, not, so that, not for her own sake, but for Naomi's. Not so that she may have descendants to raise up, but that Naomi might have descendants and a future. It's an incredible act of hesed, of kindness. Boaz recognizes this. Read at verse 10, where he says, Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness, more hesed, at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. He says, Coming back to live in Israel and serving your mother-in-law faithfully was a great act of kindness, of hesed. But here, Ruth is going beyond. Ruth is laying down her life for Naomi and by invoking this kinsman redeemer, this Goel, and saying, marry me so that we can raise up offspring for Naomi, so that Naomi has a hope and a future. Ruth is laying down her life for the good of another. What Ruth is really doing is becoming like the God that she worships. We saw that in chapter 1 and chapter 2, that she had committed herself to the Lord God. And after committing herself to the Lord God and worshiping the Lord God, she is becoming like the Lord. This is one of the great applications for us from Ruth 3. Remember that the chapter began with Naomi seeking rest and security for Ruth. And here, Ruth is laying down her self-interests on behalf of Naomi. And Boaz will agree to redeem Ruth and Naomi at great cost to himself. It's no coincidence that the most crucial moment of the story, the most crucial moment of the book of Ruth, turns on all of these acts of hesed, of kindness for others. These Old Testament saints are displaying the gospel logic of laying down your life for another. To know the grace of God for us, to know the grace of God in Christ is to be set free from the slavery of ourselves, set free from the slavery of our own self-interests. In our flesh and in the old man Adam, we struggle, we believe that God is not good. We are like all of those other false stories. We are, we are going to grasp early at what is good for us. We believe that God will not provide. We're like Naomi in chapter 1, where she is self-focused on her own lack and her own desires. But when you know the goodness of God for you in Christ, 
when you have been filled with the bread of life, you are full and you are set free. And as a result, you may freely give yourself away for others. That's what these three are doing here. Their actions remind us of Paul's injunction in Philippians 2, where he says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, and there is, fulfill my joy, he says, by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Do you know, do you believe what God has done for you in Christ? God in Christ has visited our barren and sin-filled world in the incarnation of His Son. He's come near to be our kinsman redeemer. He is truly, by taking on humanity, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. Jesus Christ, it says in Titus, gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you know that God has made you free? Are you freely giving yourself away to others? We can think about this, how it particularly relates to marriages, as it does in this chapter. This is a marriage proposal. All of you... Young people who are of marriageable age need to remember that so much of our modern marriage advice is built on finding someone who will meet your desires, meet your wants, meet your needs, rather than, as it is here, on hesed, on pouring yourself out for others. The Bible does not teach you to find someone who will fulfill everything that you need. We are to be filled with Christ. The Bible teaches us to find someone for whom we might pour ourselves out. The only way for a marriage to flourish is to put others, your spouse's interests, above your own. And it's not just marriages. It's every relationship, isn't it? Before we come to Christ, before we know that we have all that we need in Christ, we are like an empty well. We feel like we need to be filled by others. We are focused on our wants and our desires. But if we are walking by the Spirit in Christ and being filled by the Spirit daily, we are like a spring instead able to pour ourselves out for others, for our friends, for our family, for our spouses. This is the point of Hesed in Ruth chapter 3. Who then, to return to our initial question, who then is Ruth? Boaz gets it right. Look at verse 11. 
I will do for you, he says, all that you request. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. The Hebrew, that you are an aset hayil. We were already introduced to that, that hayil, that um, intensifier. Boaz in chapter 2 was the gibor hayil. Here in, in chapter 3, Ruth is the aset, the, the female version, the aset hayil. It's the word for an excellent or mighty woman, the virtuous wife. It's the words for the virtuous wife of Proverbs 31. And in fact, if you were reading in the uh, Old Testament in the Hebrew ordering of the Bible, it would end with Proverbs 31's description of the excellent wife, the virtuous wife. And then you would turn the page and start reading the story of Ruth. You would read then the story of the excellent wife, Ruth. And it really is amazing if you flip back and you go read Proverbs 31, if you go read that chapter, how many of the descriptors in Proverbs 31 apply to Ruth? She works willingly, as it says. She has no lack of grain. She brings food from afar. She rises at night. She reaches out her hands to the poor and needy. And very importantly, she opens her mouth with wisdom. Ruth exemplifies the virtuous woman, the wise wife, in spades. Remember how I said that it was hard to state just how elegant her answer to Boaz was? That was her displaying wisdom. She has this ability to walk into a completely explosive situation that could go wrong in a million different ways and say the exact right thing with the perfect amount of touch. In just two sentences, she can encapsulate theology and covenant and recall Boaz's own words to him and propose marriage and diffuse the situation. And she's able to do all of this in just a sentence or two. It's perfect. Proverbs 25.11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. A word fitly spoken is like what Ruth does. Fitting words are beautiful. But how do you know which words fit in any given situation? That's the book of Proverbs. That's wisdom. And this, I think, is the key to who Ruth is really is. And it's how she ends up in the line of David because the excellent wife, the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31 is not only wise, she's fit for kings. Ruth is fit for a king. She's fit to give birth to kings. She displays the cunning of David and the wisdom of Solomon. And as Proverbs 31 says, the law of kindness or hesed is on her tongue. And it's also fitting that she's in the genealogy of Christ because her relationship with Boaz anticipates our relationship with Christ in so many ways. Like Ruth, we are washed in the waters of baptism and anointed with Christ's own spirit. We are clothed with Christ. And we are being prepared for Christ as a bride, even now in our sanctification. And 
even though everything is perfectly and deeply just and righteous in Ruth chapter 3, there is likewise something of the paradox and scandal to our redemption that is like the story of Ruth and Boaz. God displayed his greatest justice through an illegal execution. Our Savior was glorified on a cross. The Moabite is the excellent wife, and we find our lives by losing them for Christ's sake. And we understand all of this because at the core of the deep wisdom of God is his hesed, his mercy. Like Ruth, we must seek our rest and security by casting ourselves on the mercy of our kinsman, Redeemer. And when we do, we can be confident that God will accomplish our redemption through Christ. God not only gives us his word that he will do that, just as Boaz in verse 13 gives Ruth his word, but like Boaz, he also provides us with a sign, the Lord's Supper, the same way that later Boaz gives Ruth six handfuls of barley. He gives her six measures of barley, and six always anticipates the seven, the completion. The Lord's Supper is the same way. Every time we come to the table, we remember, that God's, we remember God's pledge to us that he will see us through and settle the matter of our redemption. And so this is how the chapter ends, with Naomi asking Ruth for the second time in the chapter, Who are you? What is Naomi asking her? Naomi's asking her when she comes back in the morning, Are you Boaz's wife? And she is, by pledge. But there's the matter of the other relative still. And so she must wait and rest in hope for her full redemption, just like we do. And we'll look at that next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the redemption that you have accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the grace and the mercy that you constantly pour out on us in the way that you strengthen us and have pledged to us that you will secure our ultimate redemption. We look forward to that in grateful hope. In Jesus' name, amen.